Hi, I'm Andrew. I am the other pastor here at, at Lake Morton. Uh, pastor Caleb, as Richard mentioned, is uh, trying his hand at some itinerant preaching. Um, he's at a sister church here in Central Florida, and uh, the pastor there is a new daddy, and so Caleb's helping fill in for him. Um, that's really nice of him and all, but we still have to hold the fort here, so it falls to me to address the passage that's before us today on our journey through the book of Matthew. Now, those of you who have been around for a few years, especially when I preach through Colossians, are probably looking at the text for today's sermon and maybe chuckling to yourselves a little bit. 17 verses, huh? I wonder how many weeks it's going to take Andrew to get through 17 verses. You see, um, in the past, I've had the luxury of taking my time to preach through however many verses um, on a given week, uh, because I was the only one preaching through Colossians at the time. And that usually ended up to be, I don't know, three, maybe four or five verses, um, which if you do the math, um, in Colossians turns out to about 22 sermons, I think, in the end. But, Lord willing, Caleb will be back next week, and he's fully expecting me to get all the way through these 17 verses. So, there won't be any surprise. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion statements today. Nope. We're preaching as advertised this week. None of that funny business. So, let's get to it. We're preaching um, in Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Let's go. I'd like to begin with a thought that should inform not just today's text, but everything that we read in the Bible, though especially in the Gospels. What we have recorded of life, of the life and ministry of Jesus, is just a sample. Jesus said and did far more than Matthew records for us. And if we added together everything that was written about Jesus in the other Gospels, let alone in the rest of the New Testament, it would still be nothing of a complete record. John addresses this in his Gospel. In 21, John 21, 25, he writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now we don't have the same statement from Matthew, but he essentially says as much. As we'll read in a moment, Matthew makes this summary statement, um, and he did something similar back in chapter 4 about Jesus receiving many who were sick or oppressed by demons and healing all of them. In chapter 4, he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. And yet, back in chapter 4, we don't get a single example. So Matthew, here in chapter 8, chooses a handful of specific instances and shows us those in detail. Now, we could count 
in the Gospel of Matthew, the number of these detailed accounts in the whole book on our fingers, and we probably wouldn't even need to take off our shoes. But if we took all of Jesus' miracles, even just the healings, there would be too many to count, let alone write down and read. So later in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees come to Jesus and challenge him, asking him to show them a sign. (laughs) Another one? What an empty challenge. No wonder Jesus refuses. What this means is that Matthew is giving us selections from Jesus' healing ministry. So think about it. Jesus healed every disease and every affliction. So Matthew had a lot of options to choose from. But he chose these three first. And he chose a few more later. So I hope you remember when we read those to think about this too. But considering the miracles that Matthew must have witnessed, can you help but ask yourself, why did he choose these? We could ask it this way. Why did the Holy Spirit remind Matthew of these and inspire him to record them in this account of Jesus' life and ministry, so that we would read them and respond to them today. Now, I hope today goes along the way towards answering that question for you. So let's stand together as we read today's passage, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17, and look at what details Matthew chose. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom 
will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, it's wonderful for us to think that you lived these words and performed these works. Not only that, but you inspired men to remember and record them, especially Matthew here, so so that we can read them today and know that they are true. May we see the purpose in what you have said and what you have done. And may we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So just last week, we completed the Sermon on the Mount. And by many views, we also completed the first major section of Jesus' ministry in Matthew. Many scholars would identify five main teaching sections in Matthew. Each one ends with a similar phrase, when Jesus finished these sayings or instructions or parables. Sure enough, last week ended with Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So there's not a hard break or anything between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but there is a transition. Not only that, but Matthew uses other repeated phrases and patterns in his narration to give an organization to his story. We can easily see structure in the way that Matthew describes Jesus' ministry. In chapters 5 through 7, of course, we have a long teaching section, not much explanation necessary. But even before the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 4, as I've already mentioned, Jesus had begun his ministry. In 4.17, Jesus began to preach the kingdom. Then he called the first disciples to follow him. Then Matthew summarizes his ministry that he taught and preached and healed, as we have said, every disease and every sickness. And of course, we already have great crowds following him, even then. In a way, Matthew has given us categories to understand Jesus' ministry, preaching, calling disciples, teaching, healing. These elements are already in front of us. Obviously, the sermon gave us a great deal of detail about Jesus' teaching and preaching, right? And now in chapter 8, we are given specific details about his healing ministry. 
And so, if we were to keep reading through chapter 8 and chapter 9, Lord willing, we will notice that Jesus is doing mainly two things, back and forth. He's healing, doing miracles, and then he's calling disciples. And then he's healing, doing miracles, and then he's calling disciples. In fact, many discern in these two chapters a sort of trio of trios. There are three groups of three, sort of like case studies of Jesus healing. And in between each of the trios, there are calls for disciples, calls for disciples. We don't know, we don't have time to look at the detail right now, but I would encourage you to look, look at it and see if you find the same pattern that, that others have found. But one takeaway from this observation is that these three paragraphs before us today are intended as a kind of unit. Many, my personal tendency and many others might be to take these sort of one paragraph at a time, but there's purpose in seeing them intact as one unit and interact with each other especially with the summary statement and the final comment concerning fulfillment in verses 16 and 17, these three events form a unit. And so we should expect them to inform one another. We should expect them to be related. But they already are, right? Because they're examples of healing. But the question is, how does the unit function as a whole being greater than the sum of the parts? Another way, another takeaway, seems to be that these three healings somehow set up the subsequent call for discipleship, the call to follow Jesus that's going to come next week. Maybe the call is for those who are healed. Maybe for the disciples. Maybe for other observers. But especially, we need to consider that call for us. How do these healings call us to follow Jesus. And so, in chapter 8, the first miracle that Matthew chooses and describes is the story of a leper who is healed by Jesus' touch. Matthew writes in 8.1, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. As Caleb has mentioned, the audience seems to have grown while Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. In any case, the gathered crowds create an interesting situation for what happens next. Verse 2, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So in each one of these miracles, one of the most obvious details to notice is the nature of the person Jesus heals. And as obvious as it is to us, it would have been even more obvious to the first century audience, not to mention Matthew, who would have witnessed it and recorded it for us. Well, maybe he wasn't there yet. The first candidate is called a leper. Now, if you looked up the word unclean in Wikipedia in the first century, you would find a picture of a leper. The leper has a problem. Actually, the leper has a whole host of problems. Most obviously, he's sick with this skin disease, perhaps a, a deadening of his nerves so much that he can't tell when he hurts himself. 
But on top of that, this wasn't a, oh, let's, let's get you to a doctor situation. It was more like, I'm going to have to ask you to leave society situation. Since the disease made him unclean, and since the disease was likely permanent, there was no hope for him to return to the community once he left. Yes, there's a process in order to be declared clean, and that plays out in this miracle. But since he's identified as a leper, it probably had been a long time, and it only gotten worse. We should probably also mention that as a leper, he would be required to announce that he was unclean wherever he went because if he happened to touch anyone, they would become unclean as well. Now listen again to his expression of faith in the midst of this. If you will, you can make me clean. The definition of unclean can be made clean. So I see two elements of note. First, the leper has faith that Jesus is able to make him clean. He believes that nothing can withstand Jesus' power, not even his own sickness, his own leprosy. Jesus is able. Second, his question is whether Jesus is willing. I read it this way. He doesn't doubt that Jesus is worthy of his faith, but he does doubt that he himself is worthy of Jesus' attention. Does that resonate with you? Do you have sin that you're ashamed of? Do you live in a situation that makes you question whether you can ever actually be clean again? So much that you wouldn't presume to bring your problems to Jesus. Now, if that resonates with you at all, consider this. You'll never rise to the faith of the leper, and this is bold faith, if you don't begin with the worthiness of Jesus and not your unworthiness. Jesus is able, and so he's worthy of your faith in his ability to make you clean. Faith in the power of Jesus mixed with uncertainty towards his will for you. Especially in a particular circumstance that you're confused about. Is greater faith than any false confidence that you have in God's will for you. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So while the leper probably kept his distance in order not to defile Jesus, Jesus 
does not stay away, but reaches out and touches him. Now, I don't think we can appreciate the astonishment that surely swept over the crowd in this moment. I expect, in fact, that the miracle of healing could maybe have been overshadowed by the shock that Jesus would touch the untouchable. Remember that touching someone who is unclean, especially a leper, by law, would make you unclean. Instead of being infected, however, Jesus' purity travels the other way. Do you see that? It passes from Jesus to the leper rather than the leper's uncleanness traveling to Jesus. This doesn't just go against the letter of the law. It kind of goes against the natural tendency of things, doesn't it? When clean things touch dirty things, they both end up dirty, right? It's supposed to go that way. This is what the Bible means when it says light has come into the world. Jesus' righteousness is like light in the darkness, and the darkness cannot withstand it. While sin has a corrupting effect and influence on the individual, on the community, Jesus reverses the flow. Not only does he shine like light into the darkness, light that cannot be withstood, but he also calls his followers to be light too. We are supposed to have the same effect. We are supposed to reach out to the unclean, the hopeless, and give them light. Maybe we could talk about this in terms of influence. Do we, as followers of Jesus, influence our families? Do we influence our workplaces? Do we influence this community? Or are we the ones being influenced? And I can tell you, if you are light and else is darkness, you want that to go one way only. But Jesus is not finished with the leper yet. After healing him, he gives him these instructions. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, commanded for a proof to them. Don't tell? Really? Huh. What we have here is often referred to as the messianic secret by scholars. It's more prominent in the book of Mark, where in the context, when Jesus' ministry sort of went viral, it made it more difficult for Jesus to move around freely. So he asked people to keep quiet. Like, word of mouth was enough. Also, it's been argued that the rising tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders would escalate too quickly if his ministry advertised more. Is that what's going on here, do you think? Probably, yes, and also no. 
What do I mean? Well, perhaps similar issues are in view. We could see how both could play out in this story. Jesus is already in the middle of great crowds, and we see him getting away in Matthew. So things could maybe get out of hand, and maybe he's thinking of that. But Matthew hasn't made much of the rising tension with Jewish leaders yet. That's to come. And Jesus doesn't give any indication of a concern. After all, there are crowds already nearby, and even if they sort of scattered to make room for the leper to come forward, wouldn't they have noticed the transformation? And Jesus doesn't tell them to keep quiet. That'd be a bigger problem, I think. And as we've already said, it's not like this is the only miracle. What about the, all the others? Jesus was already known as a healer. That's why the leper came to him in the first place. So what is he doing? I think there's another explanation in this case. And I would put it this way. Jesus is not finished with the leper yet. He's not finished making him clean. So he offers further instructions to go to the priest for a proof. As we've already said, there were rules about how to handle situations like this. There was a way for the leper to re-enter the community. So this is not about sort of getting his miracle validated at the front desk. Jesus is concerned about the leper being declared clean by the priest so he can re-enter the community. That's the goal at the end of this. Uncleanness isolates. Cleanness seeks community. The man's greater problem was not his leprosy, but his isolation. Your uncleanness, too, isolates you. I don't mean that any of us should be forced to live outside the camp. We don't need to be forced to we probably isolate ourselves. If you have a sin that you are too ashamed of, you probably isolate yourself. But know this. Jesus has purposes for you in your family that demands you to be open about your struggles. Jesus has plans for you in this church that may demand you to be open about what you need, what gets in the way of your mind and heart being right with Christ. Jesus has plans for you in the community that go well beyond your being healthy. And Jesus is offering you a greater healing than you think. And so after Jesus sends the first man away, Jesus encounters another, a centurion, who asks for Jesus to heal, not by touch, but this time by the authority of his word. In verse 5, 
When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, a centurion would have been a high-ranking Roman officer responsible to Rome for maintaining order, in this case, throughout Capernaum and Galilee. And by definition, uh, for those of you who know your Latin roots, um, centurions, like century, would have been in charge of something like a hundred soldiers. This centurion comes to Jesus not for his own healing, but for his servant who is paralyzed and suffering terribly. And before the centurion can even make the request, Jesus offers to go to his home. Now, it would seem that the suffering of the servant was all Jesus needed to hear. And so Jesus is willing As we just read in the first miracle, Jesus is willing to make this servant clean as well. We're not really surprised, but we should be. Because it should be assumed that the centurion and his servant were not Jewish, but Gentile. Which explains why the centurion immediately tells Jesus not to come to his home. Jews did not go to Gentile homes let alone to centurion homes. By our ceremonial purity standards at the time, Jesus shouldn't have touched the leper, nor should he go to the centurion's house. While the leprous man was unclean by infection, the centurion is also unclean by his very nature as a Gentile, and the centurion knows it. And so this centurion doesn't question his worthiness like the leper did. He declares himself unworthy. Now, unbeknownst to the centurion, Jesus has already overcome this obstacle of unworthiness in the passage, right? And so Jesus' willingness to go to his house shows that Jesus would have healed. And so while the leper's case dealt with Jesus' willingness, the centurion's case touches on that issue, pun intended, and quickly moves to reveal something else, namely the extent of Jesus' authority. Expressed by the centurion's Extraordinary statement. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. At this point, if anyone thinks Jesus was a normal miracle worker, even then, he would be expected to be, I don't know, present at the time of the miracle and at the place of the healing. In fact, elsewhere in Matthew, Others express ideas similar to this, that Jesus' power was sort of contact-based, even hoping to touch just the hem of his garment, you remember. 
But Jesus' power is not contained in his robe. It's not contained in his finger or even his physical presence for that matter. I'll let the centurion explain. Verse 9. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion understands authority. As a commanding officer, he says the word and his soldiers obey. What about Jesus? He says the word and creation obeys. And how, does, how does Jesus assess the centurion's faith here? Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. And first, he honors the expression of great faith, comparing it to all the faith of Israel. This Gentile has surpassed the whole nation, which includes, notably, the disciples. Next, Jesus takes that opportunity to teach the crowds and us about the role of faith in the kingdom of God. In short, between reclining at table with the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and being thrown into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the difference is faith. And faith alone. Not genetics, not culture, not nationality or ethnicity. So hear this. There will be many from families and countries and backgrounds that are not like yours. Do you believe it? Jesus did. This story is not merely about the extent of Jesus' authority over sickness. It demands that for sure. It is. But it's also about the standard and extent of the kingdom. And Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, is selecting these highlights of Jesus' ministry of healing to show that Jesus' power is boundless for sure. That your faith is essential for sure. And that all who believe are welcome, regardless of social status or cultural background. Jesus' divine authority is the best news for all who trust him. But it's bad news for anyone who trusts in anything else. Consider the various levels of faith in the disciples and in the crowds, how many of them would share the centurion's confession of faith? If we believe Jesus here, none of them. 
How many of them would say, only say the word, Lord? None of them. How many of us? Verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Should we be more amazed at Jesus' willingness to go to the Gentiles' home or that he had long-distance healing power? I wonder. Jesus reaches out to the Gentile who has faith, and Jesus' power extends beyond the horizon. Where do either of those extensions end? In this episode especially, I see a foreshadowing of the gospel mission, that Jesus' kingdom will reach the nations, even to the ends of the earth. Speaking of Jesus' mission, we have one more miracle. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Okay, you thought healing a leper and a Gentile was shocking? How about a mother-in-law, right? (laughs) It was too easy. The centurion was bold enough to ask for his servant to be healed, but Peter couldn't bring himself to ask Jesus to heal his mother-in-law. It's not true, of course. In fact, in the parallel accounts of this, uh, in, in Mark and in Luke, they both tell this story, and both of those other accounts indicate that the disciples actually went to Jesus and imp- appealed to him to heal her. Though admittedly, in those accounts, it doesn't mention Peter specifically. But here's the thing, and seriously, though it is true that the disciples probably appealed on her behalf, and assuming this isn't somehow a different situation, um, a different time that Jesus healed the same woman, um, still, Matthew doesn't mention the request. Hmm. In two short verses, Matthew indicates that Jesus is able, willing, and authoritative. You could argue that this third miracle, closing out the trio, although more concise than the other two, deals with many of the same issues we've already dealt with through the passage. While she's not a Gentile, like the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law is a woman, after all, which presents its own obstacle for interacting with Jesus. I suppose we could just as easily point out that while the centurion would have been a powerful member of the community, the woman would have been marginalized to an extent in many ways. On top of that problem, she has a fever. While this is not as serious as leprosy, she would in fact have been unclean for Jesus to touch her. She would have been untouchable. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, Jesus dismisses any and all obstacles with a touch. And all this, in Matthew's account, without anyone asking for anything. Now, even knowing the other accounts, it's as if Matthew is answering a question 
Would Jesus have healed her if no one asked? And the answer is yes. In fact, he does it all the time, doesn't he? Have you ever been healed? I'm fairly certain the answer is yes for everyone in the room. How many times? Countless, right? I would argue that considering how often people are sick and get better, Jesus heals more people who don't ask than people who do. This is the shortest account of healing. And yet you could argue this is the way the Lord works most of the time, by his grace. Or we would all still be sick. One more parallel with the other two. Peter's mother-in-law is restored, not just to feeling better, but restored to service. This is not an accidental detail. Hosting the disciples in her home, she certainly served many guests, but Matthew highlights that she serves Jesus specifically, which I think gives us a sense of her gratitude. Again, no words, just actions that speak clearly. So we've, we've dealt with the leper's bold faith and the centurion's marvelous faith. How should we understand the faith statement here with no one speaking? Especially in light of the final two verses to come, I perceive a shift from Jesus responding to bold and great faith to Jesus calling for faith. And so Matthew concludes the passage by widening the lens to the bigger picture of Jesus' ministry and even to his greater mission. Verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. In this verse, Matthew gives us the bigger picture of Jesus' healing ministry again, much like chapter four. This time, however, in light of the three healings, we have a better sense of a few things. First, Jesus' unhindered authority. Though he displays no showmanship like you might expect a healer to, the ease of his authority over demons and illnesses speaks louder than any performance. Second, we have a better sense of who would come to Jesus to find healing. Who would be received and who would receive relief? The unclean, undesirable, outcast, overlooked, marginalized, powerless. There's no limit. Just as Jesus' power is limitless, so is his grace. And thirdly, we have a better sense of the personal nature of Jesus' ministry. 
because we believe in the unlimited authority that he has over creation, he could have healed the crowd with a word. He could have waved his hand, be healed. But we have seen that he treats each person individually. He treats you individually. And because Jesus' ministry is personal, the implied question is, do you know his authority? Do you have this faith? And Matthew makes his perspective all the more clear in verse 17. He quotes Isaiah, and Matthew connects through Isaiah, Jesus' healing ministry to Jesus' greater mission. He writes, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now Matthew's choice here, at first, is interesting, if not puzzling. He quotes from Isaiah 53, which is a suffering servant passage, one of the most famous prophecies concerning the sacrificial death of the Messiah. In fact, we use this very passage on Good Friday, if you remember, um, this year. So Matthew quotes out of this longer passage, passage that we read at the beginning of service, and it goes on, um, beginning in Isaiah 52 and on through the end of Isaiah 53, Matthew chooses one verse, um, and he appears to make sort of his own translation, in fact, from, from the Hebrew, not taking the, the translation that would have been uh, really popular at the time. And he chooses words closer to illnesses and diseases. Of course, we're translating his translation, so it's a little complicated. But um, the more common translation would have said griefs and sorrows, like we read earlier, in fact. And so the question is, why did Matthew choose a verse about healing in a passage about the vicarious suffering of the Messiah? Jesus doesn't appear to be suffering at all in the passage that we just read today. You see how that doesn't immediately make sense? When Jesus heals here, he doesn't take the illnesses on himself. He doesn't carry the diseases on himself. He doesn't become leprous. He doesn't become paralyzed. He doesn't take on a fever. Because of this, some commentators would say Matthew just took it out of context and used it how he wanted to. It had to do with removing sickness, right? So he ignored the sacrificial, spiritual stuff. I would rather agree with those who give Matthew some more credit and expect that he actually has a pretty profound grasp of the context when he quotes from the Old Testament. When Matthew or any other New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, we can assume that he knows the context, not just the verse. In fact, I don't think the the habit of memorizing verses out of context was in vogue at the time. And further, we can assume that Matthew expects us to know the context, or maybe to go and find the context. 
So that would mean, putting these pieces together, in some way, Matthew recognizes that Jesus does take on the illnesses himself. My understanding of this actually came in a conversation with, with Carrie, with my wife, that I need to realize, and we need to realize, that Matthew is writing from beyond the cross. This isn't his journal of the events as they happened. This is him looking back. He knows already Jesus isn't just a magician. He isn't even a miracle worker only. A healer only. He isn't snapping his fingers and making diseases disappear. Ta-da. Jesus is going to the cross. Yes, Jesus could wave his hand and make illness disappear, cease to exist, in fact. But that's not what you need. You need him to go to the cross to pay for your sin, and he has. Weakness and sin are not the main target of Jesus' mission, and Matthew knows it. Sin is the target. And so your hope for healing is the cross. Your hope for being made whole is the cross. Matthew looks back at these things from beyond the cross and sees that deeper truth already or for us. If Jesus merely wanted to remove temporary suffering, temporary consequences... It would have been free for him to do. But Jesus has a bigger mission to remove the very wrath of God against us. That healing of the leper, of the Gentile, of the centurion's Gentile servant, of the woman with a fever, that healing came at great price. Jesus' death on the cross. Now, for sure, these and other healings foreshadow the new heavens and the new earth. Promises that there will be no more sickness. But that ultimate hope is not yet here. Even though we get to have some of the first fruits. even though we get to cry out for that grace. This is why we, we wouldn't say that Jesus will heal any sickness if only we have enough faith. That's not what we believe. Jesus has promised to set us free from all sickness and disease, yes, but that is not the promise we claim now. Instead, we have something better something more wonderful, something more marvelous. Jesus has promised that if we believe he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if we will confess our sins to him, 
And so, the juxtaposition of these healings in chapter 8 with the Sermon on the Mount highlights Jesus' authority in two complementary ways. Words and works. Jesus' miracles are not emerging from a vacuum, but are part of a broader ministry of serving, teaching, and preaching. It is the whole person of Christ that establishes his fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. All the healing, as Matthew presents it, is evidence of Jesus' divine status and messianic mission, not to heal disease, but to get to the root of it in sin. And especially the way Matthew organizes these details, the details that he chooses, these miracles on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount demonstrate that Jesus' message and ministry and mission are consistent. And be sure of this, the kingdom is not just hypothetical teaching or ethical standards. The kingdom has come in power in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your power is boundless. Your authority extends to the ends of creation and beyond. Your authority extends to my life and all of its details. You are willing to make me clean, to make us clean and whole and yours. You are willing to say the word. And Lord, we pray against any shame in us that seeks to isolate us from each other, especially from you. Give us the boldness to take our sickness to you, our physical weakness and brokenness, because you can heal us, but also our spiritual sickness, because you have already paid the price so we can be made whole. In Jesus' name, amen.